Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 36. Psalm 36, hear now the word of our our God. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 35 just told us that the Lord delights in the welfare, in the peace of his servant, singular. And we saw last week the reason why the servant is singular is because the Lord delights in the king as his son. God delights in Jesus. He delights in his only begotten son, the one who took our flesh to himself and joined himself to our humanity in order that he might join us to himself. God delights in Jesus. He delights in his servant so that all who are in Jesus are joined to him. And now Psalm 36 opens of David, the servant of the Lord. Now, this exact title, the servant of the Lord, is only given to three people in the Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, and David. Now, God refers to many others as my servant, Job, Isaiah, Nebuchadnezzar, and he will speak often of Israel or of the prophets as my servants, plural. But when it comes to my servant, singular, that's rare. And servant of the Lord, that's three times. So when Psalm 35 says that the Lord delights in the welfare of his servant, that singular was important. The Lord delights in the welfare of the king, the servant of the Lord, because when the king establishes righteousness and justice, then there is joy and peace in all the earth. And Psalm 36 is a song of the servant of the Lord, of David, the, song, the servant of the Lord. And it opens with an oracle regarding the wicked. Uh, I'll mention later that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Some of you may have a footnote. The Hebrew manuscripts say, in my heart. That's why the the version that we sing says, my heart has heard an oracle. Because this is a very strange thing 
But this is transgression speaking. And the problem with the wicked is that there is no fear of God before his eyes. And the song will turn to give praise to God for his steadfast love and pray that God will continue his steadfast love to his people. Ed, Ed Clowney once commented that, that so often, so often we, we, we tend to approach life as, as saying, don't just stand there, do something. But a song like Psalm 36 is saying, don't just do something, stand there. Our New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Hear now the word of our God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Mary is the one woman in the scriptures who is called the servant of the Lord. When she says, I am the servant of the Lord, uh, I think we usually just take that as, oh, she's being humble. I'm, I'm the servant of the Lord. And she is being humble. She is accepting and receiving what God has said concerning her. But as usual, the way of humility is also the path to glory. She is accepting the call of God to be the only woman in Scripture who is named the servant of the Lord. We hear the faith of Mary when her only question is, how will this be? She accepts that it's going to happen. She's just curious. How can a virgin conceive and bear a son? And Gabriel's answer to Mary is rooted in the same premise as Psalm 36's answer to the problem of the wicked. Don't do something. Stand there. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What is Mary going to do in order to get pregnant? Now, I know, you know for the rest of us, it's like, well, there's kind of only, you got to get married. But what does Mary do to get pregnant? Well, what does David, the servant of the Lord, do to defeat the wicked? 
stand there. But as you're standing there, do the two things that Mary did and do the two things that Psalm 36 says. Praise the Lord and ask God to continue to do what he has promised. Too often we are in so much of a hurry to to just stop and say, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, there is an alternative, but that's where Psalm 36 starts. This is the voice of transgression. This is the oracle that David hears in his heart. Now, the first four verses of Psalm 36 are very strange. And the more you work through the Psalms, the more you realize how strange this is. Because where else in the Psalter do you go to hear an oracle of transgression? Okay, sure, Psalm 14, you know, the fool says in his heart there is no God. But that's what the fool says. Here we have transgression speaking. The ESV says the transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. But acknowledges in the footnote that deep in my heart is a better attested reading. Now it sounds strange. And that's why many early translations said change the pronoun from my to his. Because transgression, speaking of the wicked deep in my heart? But as one translation renders it, I know what transgression says to the wicked. How do I know? Well, because transgression has said this to me too. Our Lord Jesus could say that. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, we know he heard the voice of the the tempter himself, the voice of the accuser himself, speaking to him, calling him to do that which was contrary to what his father had said. But the opening word of the psalm is is translated throughout the prophets, uh, the oracle or the utterance. It's regularly used by the prophets in the phrase, the oracle of the Lord. So this is an oracle. This is the oracle of transgression, wickedness, speaking. As one commentator puts it, personified transgression speaks in oracular form, like a prophet. And to the wicked, this voice is authoritative. The wicked listen to the voice of transgression with the same reverence as the righteous listen to the voice of the Lord. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Actually, later in the psalm, we'll be told, the, the word Eden will be used later. Go back to the Garden of Eden. There were two voices that spoke. There was the voice of the Lord, and there was the voice of the serpent. And Adam and Eve listened to the wrong voice. The oracle of transgression became their guiding principle in how they lived that day. Indeed, when you think of verses 1 through 4 as the oracle of transgression, it makes sense of the rest of the psalm. If the problem is that we are in grave danger of listening to the wrong voice, then the solution is not to do something. The solution is to listen to the right voice. For he flatters himself in his own eyes. Verse 2, they translate it, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated it. You could also translate it, He flatters himself in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and hatred of it, which leaves ambiguous as to who's discovering and hating. 
it could be that he thinks that nobody else will find out about it. It's also possible that it's saying that he flatters himself, or dare I say that transgression flatters him, that he has found his iniquity and hated it. Ouch. After all, who ever thinks of himself as a monster? The problem for the wicked is that they have been deceived into thinking that they do know their sin and they do hate it. We'll see that tonight in 1 Samuel 4 where Israel doesn't even think that, oh, maybe, maybe our sin has created this problem. So they're like, ah, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. That's a good idea. We so often have all these bright, ah, I'm not the problem here. Everybody else is the problem here. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden again, blame shifting and pointing fingers. A woman you gave me offered me this fruit. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Not my fault. Don't look at me. Because we listen to the voice of transgression, therefore there is no fear of God before our eyes. Augustine says this well. All the sinner has in his sights is fear of other people. He does not dare to make a public declaration of his iniquity lest he be rebuked or condemned by others. He withdraws from human observation. But where to? Where do you go to retreat from human observation? Into himself. There within himself, no one watches him as he plans his trickery, his ruses, and his crimes. Because there is no fear of God before his eyes, he thinks he has no one to fear once he has withdrawn from human view into his own heart. But God is present there, isn't he? Certainly, but in the sinner's outlook, there is no room for the fear of God. Why are we so careful to protect ourselves from the eyes of others? The only reason can be that we don't actually fear God. We fear man. If we lived our lives before God, if we acknowledge that everything is open to him, then we would be less afraid of others. Do you want to find your sin? Do you want to hate it? It's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we do. Many are dishonest in the way that they look for their sins. They go about it without sincerely wanting to find their sin and hate it. Consequently, because there is dishonesty in the search, there will be an attempt to defend the iniquity when it comes into the light. Once it is found, its true character will be out in the open. And the sinner will not be able to deny that it is iniquity indeed. What do these people reply? These people who faked the search and now that they've found the sin do not hate it? Oh, but everybody does it, they say. I'm no worse than anybody else. Really? Is that our best excuse? Haven't we all said this at some level? Maybe only in your own heart, not saying it out loud, as you flatter yourself that you do hate your sin. I hate my sin, but I don't really have any intention of doing anything about it. My sin is okay. My sin is one of those respectable sins that no one objects to. I just spend too much time watching TV or playing computer games or listening to music. Transgression tells you that 
God doesn't care about the little things. Stay away from the big sins. You can have lots of little sins. Or maybe you're the sort who normally does really well at being disciplined about the little things and only occasionally then falls into some big sin. And you flatter yourself that my regular pattern is fine, so I, I don't need to worry about I, I, I'm okay. I just, I just, it's only occasionally. Well, in Romans 3, Paul quotes from verse 1 of Psalm 36 and says this is part of our fallen condition. There is no fear of God before his eyes. When we lose sight of God, when we don't see our sin before him, when we don't see our sin against him, then we're not seeing our sin correctly. When we do not fear God, then we become disoriented. We were created to be in fellowship with God. We were created to fear and worship Him. So when we don't fear Him, when we become more concerned with what others think of us than with what God thinks of us, then we actually lose sight of ourselves, who we are, what we are. What sort of being are you? What are you for? When we listen to the oracle of transgression, then we cease to act wisely. We seek we cease to do good. Verse 3 and 4. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while he is on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The problem is that the, the wicked plots trouble while on his bed. We should be repenting of trouble while we are on our beds. We should be seeking the Lord and meditating on his great deeds. The wicked man sets himself in a way that is not good. Psalm 1 had said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners, but the wicked man does not reject evil. But how do we reject evil when we are so compromised by sin? Again, Augustine says this well. If we cannot be free from wickedness, at least let us hate it. Hate sin and iniquity so that you may unite yourself to God who will hate it with you. For God hates your sin more than you do. And if you join him, it's, if you confess, to, to confess means to say with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is the solution? You might suppose the psalmist to give us a, a discourse on, on how to hate sin and obey God. And he does, but not, not that way. Many have found the transition from verse 4 to verse 5 to be abrupt and disconnected. Something like how, Verse 4, it's all about the oracle of, with wicked and then we just turned, it seems like, oh, maybe somebody just patched, patched together two disparate songs. No, no, no. J. Gresson Machen rightly said, What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but gospel. I do not need directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? So that's where the psalmist goes. The oracle of the wicked was hidden deep in the heart, 
trying to hide from God. But the praise of the Lord's steadfast love moves outward, extending to the heavens. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, judgment. These are the themes we've been seeing over the last few weeks in, in, from Psalms 33 through 35. God is faithful in His deeds. He is merciful and just in all His acts. That faithfulness, that righteousness is expressed in creation. The heavens, the earth, and the seas all proclaim the righteousness of God. We've, we've seen this in the creation psalm, Psalm 8, Psalm 19, Psalm 29. Now Psalm 36 weaves all these themes together. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. In Genesis 1, God gave the sun, moon, and stars to be for signs and seasons. And God has been faithful to His promises. The sun, the moon, and the stars have continued to serve as signs and seasons throughout all generations. Your faithfulness to the clouds. When you see the clouds above, remember, our Lord Jesus ascended with the clouds and He will one day return on the clouds of heaven as He promised. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. The mountains reflect the might and power of God. I know, in Indiana there's not a whole lot of mountains to see, but, but still, you can remember the mountains. You can consider the mountains. And your judgments are like the great deep. We cannot fathom the great deep. And even so are God's judgments. But notice where all this goes. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Transgression is deceiving man into death and destruction. But the steadfast love of the Lord, His faithfulness, His righteousness, His judgments, save man and beast. Why does... Psalm 36 include the beasts. Why are the animals included here? Because God's purposes in salvation do not end with man. Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation itself groans as it eagerly longs for the revelation of the sons of God. Psalm 36 is not saying that animals have eternal souls. Rather, it is saying that animals with all of creation participate in the salvation that God brings. God is restoring creation. He is restoring humanity at the heart, but His purposes extend to all that He has made. After all, the, the focus of the passage is on the children of Adam. Verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of Adam take refuge in the shadow of your wings. As we're going through Ruth in village, we're hearing about Ruth and how she said, take me under your wing. That's the same phrase. And this is the children of Adam are taking refuge under the shadow of God's wings as we come to the Lord our God to save us. Verse 7 turns from the majestic glory of the steadfast love of God seen in the heavens, the mountains, and the deeps and gives us the intimate picture of the children of Adam taking refuge under the shadow of your wings. And what happens when we take refuge in the Lord? What happens when we come into the presence of God's precious, steadfast love? They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. 
I told you we're going to get to Eden. Eden, it's the word translated delight. The river of your delights. The river of Eden. Verse 8 pictures a glorious feast. The abundance, the fatness of your house. The river of Eden. The river of your delights. We need to linger here a moment and taste the delight of fellowship with God Himself. My friends David and Sharon Covington wrote a, a beautiful song entitled Supper Time. The song starts off recounting, just sort of, it sounds like it's just talking about, ah, coming to supper time at the end of a long day, and you're gathering with your family. And it's, 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 so the first, the first stanza just brings you there. And then as it continues, you start to see, oh, they're not just talking about supper time. It's the, the family supper table is certainly the picture they start with, but they keep building it because they start bringing in echoes of the Lord's table as we come as the people of God to feast with Him. And they keep going because there's the one sitting in the end chair. Because there's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the one who brings us to His feast. Because Psalm 36 is, it, sure, it's talking about the feasting of the people of God at the tabernacle, at the temple. But it's pointing beyond to the same place where the Lord's Supper points us, to the wedding supper of the Lamb, when the feast will be made on the great mountain at the final day. But the Psalms help us to see that, yes, the Christian life is full of toil and suffering. But even as we say man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, that joy, that delight, is not merely for some far-off distant future. Even here, in the middle of history, in the midst of the toil and the suffering of this age, the Lord sustains us with the abundance of His house. As we heard in Psalm 23, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of all the afflictions of life. The abundance of God's house was celebrated at the Feast of Booths every year. I don't pretend to know when they sang Psalm 36. It certainly would have been a perfect song for the Feast of Booths because all Israel would have been feasting, rejoicing in the steadfast love of the Lord, His provision for another year at the harvest festival of the people of God, eating together of the peace offerings, drinking wine and strong drink. Several of the early fathers comment on how Psalm 36 uses the language of inebriation to talk about a sort of spiritual intoxication, as it were. I mean, we're drinking a river of God's delights, after all. It's what the Apostle Paul was saying when he said, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This spiritual feast, the abundance of God's house, the river of God's delights that bring an intoxication with no hangover. And all of this finds its culmination in verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. It's part of why many suspect that Psalm 36 may have an association with the Feast of Booths, because at the Feast of Booths they would celebrate God's provision in the wilderness. They would remember how He provided water from the rock. With you is the fountain of life. As Paul says, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus was the one who gave Israel water in the wilderness. With you is the fountain of life. 
And in your light, do we see light? A few weeks ago we heard from Psalm 27 of how the Lord is my light and my salvation. Light is often a picture of salvation in the scriptures because when it's really dark, it's hard to see. And when the light of the Lord shines into our darkness, in your light we see light. The term fountain of life is is often used to speak of how the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. And here the psalmist says that the fountain of life is with you. It's closely connected to what Jeremiah 2 will say. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So Jeremiah 2 says that God himself is the fountain of living waters. Psalm 36 says that the fountain of life is with God. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Is the fountain of life merely with God, or is the fountain of life God himself? Yes. Because our God is the triune God. As John goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the incarnation of the Word, we see that truly the the fountain of life is God Himself, the one who was with God and is God. As Augustine says, so the Father as fount begot the fountain, but the begetting fountain and the begotten fountain are one fountain. Uh, Who knows how much David understood of all this. He may have just thought that he was personifying the fountain of life and light. But when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, when the living water began to flow from the heart of Jesus to his people, then all the pictures and shadows of the Old Testament became clear. In your light... Do we see light? If you're looking at the world apart from Jesus, you're only seeing half-truths. You're walking in darkness, a a half-light that distorts reality. You can't escape the true light because he's the one who really did make the world. And so you do see things. But until you see him, you don't see his things clearly. If you would see the world clearly, then you need to see everything in the light of Jesus. Because the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The created light of this world was designed as a visible picture of the uncreated life, the uncreated light that is God himself. Because what is uncreated light? There's only one who is uncreated, and that's God himself. So when we speak of things being uncreated, well, there's only one thing that is uncreated, God himself. He is the light that was before any darkness. And so having praised God for his steadfast love and salvation, now we also pray that God will continue his steadfast love and salvation and that his just judgment would come against the wicked. The prayer of verses 10 through 12 includes both of the themes of the first two parts of the psalm. Verse 10 focuses on praying for God's steadfast love to the upright. Verses 11 and 12 pray for God's judgment upon the wicked. 
even as we praise God for His mighty deeds and sending His Son into the world, we also pray that He would continue His steadfast love. Oh, continue, verse 10, your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Righteousness has to do with how you order your community. In verse 10, we pray that God will order His community in a way that makes things right for the upright in heart. The upright heart is the heart that knows God, fears God, and seeks first His kingdom. The upright heart is one who is more concerned with what God thinks of you than with what others think of you. That's what it means to be upright, that you're looking to Him, not to what others think. And we also pray that God's righteous judgment will come upon the wicked. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, verse 11, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Psalm 36 ends with evildoers fallen, unable to rise. But notice the curious way the psalmist says this. Unlike previous psalms, he doesn't even ask God to really do anything. He puts it in the passive voice. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There's no reference to who is acting here. And this connects with what we've seen throughout the Psalms about how God's judgment of the wicked is in accordance with their deeds. They fall into the pit that they dug. In a sense, God doesn't have to do anything about the wicked. He simply leaves them to their own devices and their own devices destroy themselves. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. He doesn't want God to hear him, so God doesn't hear him. He plots trouble on his bed, so God leaves him to his trouble. And where does God leave him? There. He did not wish to fear God, so God leaves him there, far from the fountain of life, far from the river of delights. If you listen to the oracle of transgression, then you will end there. Now, the psalmist never quite gets around to telling us what to do. But if you think about it, if you are praising God for his steadfast love, if you are praying for God to continue his steadfast love, you will be doing quite enough. You will find yourself in every situation you're in with knowing probably pretty much exactly what to do because you'll be in the right place at the right time. And when the thing happens and, the free, and it's time to say something, time to do something, you'll be there and you'll know. I realize that's not exactly the sort of practical how to do it that you want to hear. But again, like Ed Clowney said it, don't just do something. Stand there. And while you stand there, praising God for His steadfast love and praying that His steadfast love will continue to those who know Him, God will bring His salvation to the ends of the earth. After all, who is actually in charge of this universe? Anybody? Yeah. 
is he actually in charge? Or oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure God really knows what he's doing. I, I, I got to take over. I got to take care of this myself. It sounds crazy when we start talking that way, because it is crazy. But as you praise God, as you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you will fear him more than you fear anyone else. You'll be more concerned with what he thinks of you than with what anyone else thinks of you. And so you will genuinely hate your sin. Because it's like, this is against God. I don't want to do this against God. And you will turn from it in true repentance. And love the Lord your God with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's what will happen when you don't do something. Stand there. Oh, Lord, our God, help us because we are such busybodies and we always feel like we have to go do, 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 do. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Help us to stand before you and behold the mighty glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord who sits at your right hand because he endured the suffering of death and took upon himself your wrath and curse, and has established your kingdom. Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ, that we would not be pursuing our own interests, but rather that we would seek first the interests of Christ, and thus seek the interests of others rather than our own. Lord, have mercy. Be gracious to us for the sake of your Son. Amen.